0: This is the doubles only tennis podcast where you learn the best tips and strategies in the world to help you become a smarter, more effective tennis player. You'll hear interviews with pro tour doubles players and coaches, including easy to use lessons to improve your game and win more matches. My name is Will Bocek, founder of the tennis tribe, doubles strategy coach and host of the show. Hey, doubles fans, and welcome to this episode of the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast. Uh, For this episode, I think you're going to have to listen to it probably two or three times, maybe more, to get everything out of it. I talk with Gigi Fernandez, who is one of the greatest doubles players of all time. She won 17 majors on the professional tour, uh, and today, lucky for us, she specializes in teaching uh, club and recreational adult USTA type uh, doubles players. So this is a really rare opportunity where you get someone at the pro level teaching at uh, a recreational level or a club level. So uh, you're going to get a ton out of this. And like I said, I think you're going to want to listen to it several times because Gigi understands doubles on such a deep level that she, you can hear she speaks so fast and is able to get so much strategy into this 45 minute to an hour conversation uh, that uh, really it, it's tough to kind of wrap your head around all of it after just one listen. So like I said, Gigi is a, a 17 time major champion. Uh, you can learn more about her on her website at ggfernandeztennis.com. Uh, in the episode, we talk about her pro career a little bit. We also talk about her pro coaching career, how she transitioned to coaching adult tennis. Uh, on her website, she has a doubles IQ quiz that you should go take. It's uh, it's pretty fun. I scored a 75 out of 100, so hopefully you can uh, match that or beat me. Uh, and then after that, we get into Gigi's... Uh, strategy. So she calls it the GG method, and she has uh, five different parts to it. And we go over those five parts. Uh, we talk about serve strategy, return strategy, uh, how to play at the net, different formations. We talk about the biggest mistakes that she sees from club level players. We talk about how to beat a team that lobs. And then at the end, as always, I ask her her favorite books, her favorite tournament. Uh, The toughest opponent she had on tour, her favorite victories, uh, and then she has a good story for us at the end. So uh, this is a really, really good episode. If you want to learn a lot about double strategy, this is probably one of the best episodes uh, that we've done to date. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Gigi Fernandez. All right. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the show. Today, we've got Gigi Fernandez on. Gigi, welcome.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for having me, Will.
0: Yeah, this will be a lot of fun. Um, And I want to dive into strategy a lot today. But before we get to that, uh, I was doing some research earlier. Uh, Obviously, I I knew you were a 17-time major champion and all these accolades. But I was going through your pro career and saw from 92 to 94, you won three majors per year, and you won nine consecutive finals and only dropped a set in two of those finals.
1: which Wow. Was just mind blowing
0: to me. I don't know <laughs> if anybody's ever told you that.
1: Not, I mean, I knew that I won six in a row, but I didn't know that we had nine consecutive finals. And I didn't know that we only dropped two sets in the finals. That's, wow, that was good, I guess. <laughs> so,
0: so, yeah. So, in three years, winning three of the four majors and then yeah. winning nine straight finals, what was your mindset like during those years obviously you're the best doubles player in the world every time you're on the court you've got to feel just so confident
1: yeah it was um you know once we got rolling um Natasha and I got together right before we won our first grand slam which is the french open in 92 um and you know we won that one I don't remember if it was easy or not, but I remember after winning Wimbledon, we thought we kind of had something pretty special going. And then, then we won the first six round slams that we played, that we played, which is still a record, I believe, no one's done that. Mirza um, and Hingis got close. I think they won the first four that they played. Um, but it was, I mean, it's a really nice feeling to walk on the court knowing that you don't have to do anything special to win; that you just have to play your game and if you play your game, you're gonna win. Um, and then also, we had this mental edge over everybody because we got in a, a, we got, we would get in, in a, I guess you'd call it a habit, as a bad habit, but we'd get down in matches, um, and we just wouldn't lose. I mean, we we were down a lot. You know, I think you said we only lost two sets in the finals, but we struggle. I we struggled during grand slams. Like at some point in the grand slam, we would be down a set in a break or match points. It wasn't all smooth sailing, but we just always found a way to win these matches where. We were just on the brink of defeat. and So then people started to feel the same way. It's like, oh, well, they're down to send a break, but they're, they're going to come back and, you know, they're going to end up winning. So it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We thought we were going to win. They thought they couldn't win. So, you yeah. oh. know, and I think, yeah. So it was pretty fun. We, have, we won, Natasha and I won 14 grandstands in five years. So that was that was a pretty fun time. Yeah.
0: That's incredible. Yeah. So it sounds like some of the opponents... You'd step on the court and you knew you could play your own game and the opponents were the ones that had to take more risk and adjust right. and things like that.
1: exactly. They'd have to come up with some special strategy to beat us because if we just played normal tennis, and we were, if they played their best and we played our best, we were going to win. right? So they were the ones right. that had to take risks.
0: Right, that's amazing. So uh, what, what do you tell people when they ask what, what you're doing now? What do
1: you do? Oh, a lot. So, um, G-Friend is Tennis, um, those three main things. I have online products, um, doubles, the G method online is online and is basically everything I know about doubles in a video program. Uh, I also have a mental toughness product, a volley pro uh, program, I have a subscription service. So it's kind of the online part. Now, the second thing I do are camps and clinics. I do clinics around, travel around the country, going to clubs, doing clinics, introducing people to the Gigi Method. And then I do camps here in Tampa, uh, three-day camps at the Innisbrook Resort. And I also do them at Indian Wells, um, the US Open, when those events happen again. Yeah. And then I also, the third thing I do is uh, have a travel portion to that. So I take my followers to Grand Slams, Labor Cup, Um, and other special events. So I've been doing this solely for about almost three years now. Um, And it was going really well until COVID hit. (laughs) And COVID has been, um, of course, a deterrent for people to travel. So, and also for me to travel or for me to go to a club and expose myself to 24 or, you know, 36 participants and people not wanting to be around other people. So it's been a little bit of a struggle. Um, yeah. For the last six months, but hopefully, you know, things will get back to normal sometime right. soon, and you know, we'll go back to doing what we love.
0: Right. Yeah. Hopefully, this spring, the vaccine rollout goes well. Yeah. So that's what I do on that
1: side. I'm also on the board of the um, International Tennis Hall of Fame, and I'm the chairperson of something called the Hall of Famer Council, which is, is which is um, seven past Hall of Famers. Um, we formed, just formed a committee to try to get help get more con- connectivity between the Hall of Famers because, you know, we have these 93 living Hall of Famers and we're all pretty disjointed. You know, we're not, okay. we don't, um, we don't have really a really community around it. I mean, it's like you get inducted and it's the greatest day of your of your career by far. And then you kind of go away and no one ever knows what you did. <laughs> you know, there's so many, if you think about how many Hall of Famers are out there that if they're not broadcasting, You never hear from them, you know, and, and, you know, and I'd like to know how, like, for example, Gabby Sabatini's doing or, um, I don't know, like Moresmo, you know, a contemporary, like, what is she up to? Like, she's not coaching right now. What is she up to? So, so we're just trying to um, get more connectivity with the whole team. So that's a fun project.
0: Cool. Yeah. Get some yeah to connect everyone again. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, And then for a little bit after, your pro career. I think I read that you did some coaching as mm-hmm. well on the pro level.
1: Yep, I've coached at every level. And
0: why did that? <laughs> why did that kind of uh, slow down or? Why, why uh, yeah,
1: yeah, good question. So, so my journey into coaching really started pretty much right when I retired. I started coaching the Puerto Rican Fed Cup team, um, and went to of course Fed Cup with them. I went to the Pan Am Games with a couple with the, as the coach of the Puerto Rican team at men and women. Um, Then I started, um, then I became a coach at university of South Florida division one here in Tampa. Um, And I did that for about four years. And then I got frustrated with the recruiting process because I kept recruiting people that I thought would be really good college players, but they all wanted to turn pro. And not one girl that I tried to recruit that turned down my scholarship offer ever made it on tour you know but all the parents thought that they were going to be the next Jennifer Capriati you know and it was like
0: yeah
1: and so it was frustrating because I just couldn't get players to to commit so I stopped with that and then I started coaching uh, Lisa Raymond and Sam Stowe. well first Renee Stubbs was the first person that I coached Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, Renee and Lisa were those partners so I coached them and then when they stopped playing together then I kind of paired up Lisa Raymond and Sam Stowe. or and they won the uh, 2005 uh, U.S. Open when I was coaching them, so mm-hmm. it was kind of fun to to coach a Grand Slam team to kind of be on the other side. Uh, and then I be- became director of tennis at Chelsea Piers in Connecticut, and I coached players from you know three years old to like you know, less than with an 80 year old uh, uh person whose, whose mom was turning 80 and she wanted to give her a tennis lesson from me. So so I've coached anything from, you know, three to 80. Um, and then in the end, I ended, up, I ended up coaching adults because I found that uh, it's what I enjoyed the most. Um, I didn't, I didn't, sometimes didn't want to deal with kids that didn't respect my past, you know, and they, mm-hmm. you know, 10 year olds have no concept of what it's like to be in the court with a Hall of Famer or Grand Slam champion. And sure. and, I, and I, I got a little bit tiring of that, but the adults just love being on the court with me and they, they're sponges and they want to learn, they want to get better. And I made a lot of friends. Um, at that time I discovered the social side of tennis, like something that you probably take for granted. Tennis is social, but I didn't re- really learn that till I was um, 47 years old. So, yeah. um, so so, yeah, so now, you know, I, I kept coaching adults because that's really what fit with my schedule. And I stopped coaching, um, I stopped traveling on tour because I became a mom. I was mom of, i now a mom of 11-year-old uh, twins. And once I became a mom, I was going to for sure stop traveling because um, I didn't want to be away from my kids. And then the reason that I stuck with the adults was not only because I, like I said, I really enjoyed it, but also because adult practice and my kids are in school so like from nine to two you know I teach adults right. and then I would go pick up my kids to school and be a mom for the rest of the day so it really fit my lifestyle
0: yeah it makes it a lot easier yeah, yeah. It, it seems like it's uh yeah you're making a big impact on the adult double scene um, yeah
1: so yeah so has been very successful um it's kind of what beyond my wildest dreams successful like I've never thought I would yeah. make uh you know I didn't think that my second career would be more successful than my first and more profitable if you think about just from the true business perspective. Sure. Um, this career has already more you know more potential than my other one had or definitely I'd you know, make more yeah. money now than when I was playing. It's kind of crazy. But yeah. uh, but it's true. So
0: yeah you're pretty lucky like on that cusp of when prize money was starting to increase significantly.
1: Yeah, I was right. I mean, it was pretty good. Like I, you know, I made four and a half million dollars, I think, during my career, but w- which sounds like a lot of money. But when you think about a life, you know, what I saved out of that, not quite half because you have so many right. expenses. And when you think about, you know, how, how long can you make that last? Not that long. You know, when you have right. extravagant lifestyle and you travel and you make a couple of bad investments. Um, so it's hard to, it's hard to, Live for you know for 50 years on two million dollars, like it's not happening, right? Right, so so um, so yeah, so I mean, I had to, after the kids were born, kind of reinvent myself. And I've done, I've gone through a lot of iterations of doing different things, and in the end, I came back to tennis because it's really what I love and what I know and what I'm most passionate about. After I took a break, I I mean, I really took a break. It sounded like when I was talking about my coaching path, it sounded like I really never left the game, but I was very reluctant and um, very. Uh, sort of apathetic about being in tennis because when I retired, I wanted nothing to do with tennis. I was burnt out and I wanted to be anything other than G. Fernandez, a tennis player. So I spent a lot of years trying to create a new identity and after 15 years of failing at that, <laughs> then I decided, okay, I'm going to go back to what I love, which is tennis. And uh, you know, I've, I've had long enough break that I um, f- you know, felt a passion for it again. So I just embraced embraced what I know and and it's been a wonderful journey.
0: Yeah, I'm sure finding that social side of it helps a lot too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've made so many friends on the tennis yeah, court so and that was so different than my yeah. my path, you know, where your, anybody that was around the tennis courts was a your enemy. You know, was your yeah. the <laughs> person true. you wanted to like break their ankles so they wouldn't show up on the court, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Exactly. So it's very different.
0: So so now you've got uh, all this stuff going on online. Earlier today, I was on your site. Uh, I think it's ggfernandeztennis.com. Correct. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes for everyone. And right there on the site, you can test your doubles IQ with a quiz. Did you take I, it? I took. I scored Uh-oh. a 75%. Oh,
1: like you missed. out
0: of 100. I'm going to um, look it up. One of the ones I missed was a if you have a player you're serving in the ad court your partner has a weak backhand volley and the opponent keeps attacking their backhand volley I think I put to put them in the I formation or Australian formation and have them stay so that they have a forehand volley in the middle but you actually said to bring the partner back and put them
1: back to, to the, the baseline
0: yes you said put it to their left so both players are on the ad court so talk that's a little a, bit about that. I've never used or even heard of that formation.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Actually, I did. I, I used this with, um, I was coaching Connecticut, a Darien High School Connecticut team, you know, a high school team, like not pro level, right? So when you, the higher the level of the, the least weaknesses that you have, but when you're coaching high school players, that weaknesses can be pretty pronounced. So I had a player who had a pretty weak backhand volley. Like she, she would just kind of chop down on it and the ball would go straight up. So if I did I formation or Australia, they would just return to her and or in, would find her backhand volley. So what I would do is I would, I would put her, literally she would stand in the alley of the cross court alley, right? So to the left of the server. And then the server would stand kind of in the middle, but not, not quite on the tee because what I wanted was for the girl serving to hit the next ball. So wherever the ball came on the next ball, she would hit. And then as she's hitting that ball, then the person with the weak back and volley would run to the net, and now she would have a forehand volley in the middle and she could poach for that. And we, it first of all, throws people off. Half the people, when you do this, three quarters of people are gonna tell you that's illegal, that you cannot stand back there. <laughs> but it is, it, it is perfectly legal, it doesn't matter where you stand. Um, and it's a good strategy, you know? It's like, if you have a, weak, a weakness at the net, you just completely hit it. You, you took the weakness away, you put it back where it was not a weakness anymore. Okay. What else did you miss?
0: Uh, I'm not sure the other ones I missed. I think uh, yeah, the, the, there was one that was like all of the above, and I, I had selected my favorite of the other three. Got the it. The Early ones. Yeah,
1: yeah. One one thing that people don't think when they're covering at the net is um, if you're playing, and of course this is audio, so it's kind of hard to explain. We don't, I can't show it, but um, if you're on the ad, if you're on the um, if you're at the net on the do side. Right, so you're serving to the outside, and you're standing on the do side, and your opponents have the baseline, and they're hitting a forehand, or what I call an inside shot. Inside an inside shot, you hit it from the inside of the court, and an outside shot, you hit on the outside of the court. So, on the outside, a backhand is an outside shot, a forehand is an inside shot. If someone's hitting a forehand there, the natural shot for them to hit cross court goes into your alley. So. It, from, you know, on tour, it doesn't happen very much because people hit the ball so hard. It's hard to hit, you know, if, if, you, hit, if you have a huge serve and somebody's stretching, they're not going to hit that cross court into your alley. They're going to be late, and they're going to hit it inside out. But because um, recreational players, especially women, don't hit the ball as hard, or even, you know, mm-hmm. 3 5 4 oh, men don't hit the ball as hard, or don't penetrate their volleys, that forehand goes cross court into the alley quite a bit on the, in the recreational game. So right. kind of got to mind your alley on that one.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like an inside out forehand that lands kind of short in the court.
1: But it's not inside out, it's inside in. It's actually a cross court forehand, but cross court meaning it's going from the middle of like if you stand if you're hitting it from the T, right? Cross court goes into the alley that you're standing in. Mm-hmm. with the outside player sending in I was, you, know, I sure you can see it here so I'm talking yeah. about this shot
0: we'll post the video too so. yeah
1: yeah so if somebody's hitting the ball from an inside shot so if somebody's hitting an inside shot here like this person has to watch this alley um, the crossboard person is going to watch the middle and you cannot hit inside out into here from an inside shot because your partner's in the way right? I mean, right. if you're running around and hitting a, four, a forehand, well, now, now that's an outside shot because you're standing on the outside far out of the court. But if you're standing on in the inside of the court, then the, you cannot hit from the inside of the court into the far alley. You're hitting right. your partner in the back of the head. Yeah. So, one. yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that's one I missed. and I, I know I missed the, the server's role I think was all of the above and I had put my favorite one, which I think I put a uh, make a high percentage of first serves.
1: Yeah. All that. And you got to yeah, communicate, were, control the first tempo first. of the game, communicate with your partner. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, 75 is not bad. I get 35s and 40s a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's <good to> hear. <laughs> yeah. Makes me feel a little better. Yeah. So let's go. I want to go through the GG method. So okay, sure. that all over the site, uh, we've got positioning. There's uh, five or six different things. Five steps surrounded by competition. Five steps surrounded by competition
1: Yeah. So the first one is positioning. Yeah. I mean, so positioning. You have to know where you're standing, and people are so um, sometimes oblivious about the fact that they're in a positioning error. So, so when you're playing, if you're if you are you know, on the other side of the court, your opponents are in a positioning error, then you have to attack the positioning error because you can win points of positioning mistakes. And what I tell players is, if you break the, if you're in the center of the service box and you break the box in half and you break it in half again, and you stand right in the middle, and then you extend your arm and draw a circle around yourself, it's about a six foot circle. You should be inside that circle anytime you're at the net. So when you're, if you're in that circle. You're good. If you're outside the circle, bad things are going to happen. If you get too close to the net, you're going to get lobbed. If you get too close to the center uh, center line, you're leaving your whole alley open. If you get too close to the service line, you're going to get lobbed. And the only exception there is if you're anticipating lob, then you could stand outside your circle. And then if you get too close to the alley, then you committed the corners of doubles, which is you stood on your alley to cover your alley. Um, right. There's really no reason in doubles, particularly in recreational tennis, to cover the alley because it's the most, it's the hardest shot to hit. Um, if you doubt this, you know, feed 10 balls to a person starting in the base, standing in the baseline and see how many balls they hit that actually land inside the alley.
0: Right.
1: And for three O's is zero for three, five, four O's is one for four, five, five O's is two, maybe two, maybe depending on the fed ball. Right. So, right. so then I tell players, you just don't cover the ball. that's going to go in 10% of the time. You throw the ball, yeah. is going to go in 90% of the time. So, you know, anytime you're not in your circle and you're not in the baseline, you're in a positioning error, right? So really understanding that as you travel from the baseline to the net, you it's okay to stand in what people call single snowman's land. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I think it's, misconception that you shouldn't be in, in no man's land. It's okay. You actually want to hit balls from no man's land because you're taking the time away from the opponent, mm-hmm. but we well, don't want to stay there and hit three balls, but you want to travel through that area from the circ, from the baseline to the circle as quickly as possible. Hopefully it just takes you one transition shot to get into the circle. Sure. Um, so that's kind of the, just the positioning. Um, and then court coverage, of course you have to understand what is your ball and what is not your ball. And we, um, there's a lot of confusion sometimes at the net with recreational players as to what ball they should be covering or not covering. And that's why we have a lot of what I call middle confusion. Like people don't know who gets the middle ball, if it's yours or mine. And it's a lot of crashing going on. Um, You know, and I fixed that, I fixed that coverage problem by staggering. Like when, when players are staggered, one player is slightly in front of the other and the player that's slightly in front is player who's ever half the ball is in. So if okay. the balls You're in my half
0: when both players are at the net.
1: Correct. Yeah. When both players are at the net, we have where's the whatever side the ball is in, mm-hmm. that player slightly staggers forward and they get the middle, they get the middle balls. And then the person that's slightly staggered back is responsible for the lob their balls that go to them and also the lobs. Got it. Um, okay. right. So and then the other coverage misconception we talked about on the inside shots, you have to watch your alley. But generally speaking, the if you're the ball's in front of you, you're man, you're minding the middle. You're the aggressor. You're the one that's trying to put the ball away, and then mm-hmm. your partner's cross court. For me, is responsible for the lobs. So that's steps one and two. Understanding that, um, then three and four are. Before do you want to talk about, more to about this?
0: Four, let me yeah. let me ask you a couple questions on those. Sure. Yeah. So uh, positioning. The one thing you said is, is people cover their alley too much. It sounds like. What What are some other common positioning and court coverage mistakes you see for that three five four oh four five level
1: so the first one is standing too close to the alley um thinking that you know you're protecting your alley and when you do that you leave 85 percent of the court for your partner a very common one is for the cross-court player to close so some coaches teach that the middle is the responsibility of the cross-court person the problem with that is that if you're covering the middle and you're the cross court person, you have to close. You have to get really close to the net because you also have to cover the cross court. Right? Mm-hmm. No one else is gonna to go to the cross court but you. So the only way to cover the middle and the cross court is to get close to the net. And when you do that, you leave the lob wide open. And you're leaving the cross-court lob open, which is a higher percentage lob to hit than the down the line lob. It has six to eight more feet to hit into than the down the line. But also because of the geometry of it, a cross-court ball is going away from your partner trying to chase it as opposed to a down the line log, which is easier to chase because it's just down the line. It's not running away from the court. Um, so that's a common one, the cross court person going forward. Then people standing too far back or still following the ball. You know, I I, I don't teach follow the ball. I think confuses players. Um, and that's where they follow all the way into the base, into the alley. And um, so a lot of times, uh, let's say you're in a we're two up against, or say you just return and come in or you serve and volley and people have a tendency to serve and volley and come towards the middle um, thinking that their partner's going to get the alley, they're going to get the middle and then they leave the cross court wide open. Mm-hmm. Um, standing too far back in the, in the circle so that it's too easy for the opponent to hit the ball to your feet. Um, another positioning error is standing uh, f- three to five feet behind the baseline when you're at the baseline uh, going back letting the ball bounce and you know the further back you are the further the more time you give your opponent in doubles you're always trying to take time away from the opponent so if you're standing kind of hugging the baseline and not going back taking the ball on the rise or in the air if possible then you don't give your opponents time to get in position
0: right yeah yeah those are all really good ones yeah One one thing that I like to tell tell my readers is a lot of these rules also kind of depend on the um, what's going on on the court, right? Because there's so many variables and doubles. So it might be the case that in one match, the team's not very good at lobbing or maybe they just never lob. So you can close a lot harder. But maybe right. in another match, you have to cover that lob a little bit more. So it just kind of, a lot of it depends. But these are really good general rules to yeah. follow and mean, kind of adjust as you notice different trends. Right.
1: I mean, you always have your plan A when you go on the court. And then if that doesn't work, then you go to your plan B, right? So so covering the court the basic way first until you detect a tendency. You know, I tell people don't cover the alley. Don't cover your alley on an outside shot. But if you have somebody who is great at it, they pass you three times in a row with you know the backhand online into the alley, right. clearly they have that shot. So then you got to cover it. Right. Um, you know, if somebody's hitting – some, and where are they hitting the ball from? It's another – something that you also have to um, – kind of ju- or analyze to decide whether you're going to cover your alley or not. Because if somebody's standing in their service line and they're going to try to pass you, so you have, you've hit a weak volley and you have somebody coming, coming in to kill a, a ground stroke, the, the only two places they can hit the ball hard are down the line into your alley and through the middle. If, they, if they're going to hit across court, they can't hit it hard because it's going to go wide, so they have to, like, dip it, right? right. So, so in that case, you would cover your alley so those are two exceptions to cover in the alley the inside shot and the short balls right are the two exceptions to cover in the alley not on and people think that when somebody's standing way outside the alley they should cover their alley but i don't know any recreational players who can hit the ball around the net post into the alley
0: yeah
1: so i still say don't cover it it.
0: doesn't work for me so it's yeah
1: it's not going to happen so just let them have it if they make it one time and it'll be lucky if they make it three times then you pay attention
0: right absolutely so, yeah that's that's a really good rule um if you yeah. get beat three times then start to make the adjustments right so mm. next is uh we have positioning court coverage and then serve is the third one
1: yeah so serve term is that. yeah so the serve you know there's um so many different things you can do to help your team hold serve. And most recreational players don't utilize all these all the options that they have. They just simply right. serve, cross-court, and play out the point. Um, you know, there's uh, Australian formation and I formation. And, of course, I formation is for the higher levels. But Australian formation has the same benefits. And it's a simple change of of positioning that really is – the purpose of it is to throw off your opponent so that Mm -hmm. they have to hit down line returns once in a while. There's really six reasons you do Australian or formation. Most people can name one, which is to make the opponent go cross court or go down the line. If you have a good cross court return, you also do it. If you have a poaching opponent, if if your opponent's at the net poaching, um, if you do I for Australian formation, they, it's It's harder to poach down the line. Yeah. If your partner is poaching, Mm -hmm. um, then on your first volley or on your first ground stroke with poach, poaching, then you go, if you do Australian and you're hitting down the line, it's a lot harder to poach right. other than the line. You do it to put your partner with their best volley, whether it's a forehand volley or a backhand volley. If your partner has a better forehand volley and backhand volley, you do Australian and put him uh, on the outside, right? So now they have a forehand volley poach. Right, if they're um, right-handed. If they're right-handed, correct. If they're left-handed, you would do it on the do side. Mm-hmm. Um, you do it to put you you with your best ground stroke. So if your forehand's better than your backhand, and you're serving to the ad, the Australians, you go hit a forehand. Um, you do it anytime you're losing points on a cross court rally. Like if you don't serve a volley and your po- opponent doesn't either, and you're in a forehand to forehand rally, and you're losing points because your forehand's better than your forehand, then go hit backhands. Go hit gotcha. backhands okay. down the line, right. right? And then the main reason that's five. The fifth, the sixth one, and the most important one is to disrupt your opponent's rhythm because. It's your job as a server to always keep your opponent guessing. And if you don't mix it up, then they're not going to be guessing. Um, and, of course, you know, having routines, uh, very important communicating with your partner so they know what you're going to do, where you're serving, if you're serving and staying back or serving and coming in. It's really important the communication between the server uh, and the service partner.
0: So what um, should they be talking to each other about? it's really what they're attempting to do, you know, whether they're
1: going to serve and come in, serve or stay back, if they're going to serve wide. But if you're going to serve wide to in doubles, your partner needs to know. Because if you are if you have any decent wide serve and your opponent's going to be late, they, they, there's a good chance they're going to hit that ball down the line. So you kind of have to be aware of that. You, you can't poach on a wide ball, on a wide serve rather. You can poach on white balls, but not once. on white serves is hard to poach because you, you leave your whole alley open um so the better your opponents return the more important the communication between the partners is so you'll you know you kind of all know what's what's happening right so at minimum your partner should know if you're serving involving or serving staying back and then ideally they know whether you're serving to the forehand or the backhand or the body so they have some idea of the ball that's coming back
0: okay got it and then uh, we talked a little bit about formations. What do you, How do you view the server's partner's role?
1: The server's partner's role is the main responsibility of the service partner is to help the partner hold. Like if my partner did not hold, unless she hit two double faults from the game point, I, or even unless well, she had four double faults in a row, because why did we get to the game point? Right, I, should, I needed to be helping her. So I always felt it was my responsibility if my partner did not hold. I was not active enough. I was not moving enough. I was not intimidating enough. I was just kind of standing there like a bump on a log, which is right. fairly common in doubles. The service partner not thinking that they're in the point. You know, when, right. in fact on every serve that your partner hits, you should either be, either be faking or poaching or you know, hopping, moving forward, doing right. something. You can't just be yeah. stationary when your partner's serving.
0: Yeah, some kind of lateral movement. I see what I see when I go to the these tournaments and leagues and stuff around Texas is a lot of servers partners at the the three five to four five level that we're talking about, they'll move forward and backwards well, <laughs> but they don't move laterally a lot. Right. Yeah. So that goes back to the, you know cover the alley thing, which I think a lot of times is more of a psychological thing than it is a, you know, do what's best for winning. Right.
1: Because you know, people feel, feel like,
0: like you let your partner down. You feel like if you, you got, got passed points, right, I know. Exactly. which
1: is, the, it's really the silliest thing that it's a, I don't know who, who first shared the sentiment, but I can tell you that when I was playing, if I did not get passed on my alley, I was not doing my job. Because I actually wanted my opponent to hit the ball down my line. I was begging them to try that low percentage shot. Yeah. You know, and then once you start faking and staying, then they're going to be completely f- like a mess. And they will not even know if you're going or staying. And and that's the role of, that's what good doubles players do. Forever and ever and ever. The good doubles players, if you go through a little history of doubles, yeah. the good doubles players at every level were the ones that were intimidating their opponent at the net.
0: Yeah, they um, get passed down the
1: line a lot. They get passed down the line. And, and, I, and I don't know how many times I poached and I just took off and and the opponent would miss. They would just miss because changing the you know, changing your mind on a shot mm-hmm. as the ball is coming is a very, very hard thing to do. Like if you made up your mind to hit cross-court and all of a sudden you see the person going and you have to change last minute to go down the line, yeah. that is a very difficult thing to do. And, you know, make, there's data, there's data. Yeah, there's actually data um, that proved that um, Jim Lair did a study in the '80s with uh, Andrea Agassi, Jim Courier, um, t- uh, uh, Martin Blackman. I forget who the for, maybe Dave Wheaton. Like he he used to mm-hmm. work with all those players, and he gathered data where he put targets on the court, like a like a like a bullseye like right? a bullseye, and then an outer ring, like the target logo, right? So if they hit the middle of the target. It was 10 points. If they hit the next level, it was five points and they hit the next level, uh, was one point. So he would say, Okay, I'm gonna the pro's gonna feed you ball, so you're gonna hit 10 cross-court forehands so and let's see how close to the target you get. And then he would count how many points they got. He said, Okay, now when the ball comes, I'm gonna tell you whether you're gonna hit it whether you're gonna hit this one to the down the line target or the cross-court target. So now yeah. the player didn't know whether it was going cross-court or down the line. So then as the ball would come, he'd say, hit this one cross-court, hit this one in the line. Of course, they're their accuracy went down a lot. But what was even more interesting of the study for to me was that he said to them, okay, now these you're going to hit cross court, but at some point when, when some balls come, I'm going to tell you to hit this one down the line. But you're going to ignore that voice, and you're going to stick to your first instinct. And when he did that, the accuracy was exactly the same. Hmm. Like were was accurate when they didn't doubt themselves as – when they if they just went with their first instinct. So what that tells you is if you have a doubt about what shot to hit, go with your first instinct and don't change the direction or don't change the shot in the middle of of uh of the trajectory of the ball. Right. So that's why we poach because we know that players are gonna be Mm -hmm. more inconsistent uh if they try to go behind you and when you make them change their mind in the middle of the shot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna look up that study, see if I can find it and I'll include that, um, in the show notes. And that's a good transition to our next, uh, the the next topic, which is returning returns. It sounds like, uh, we shouldn't be changing direction on our return. What else uh, do we need?
1: Well, there's, so there's that when you, when you boil it down, you have, um, you have two choices. When you hit the return, you can drive the ball and you can lob the ball. Right. And, at the core, that's the two things you could do. Now, if you're going to drive the ball, most of the time you're going to hit across court, but you can also hit it at the net person. And I think that's an underutilized return. Mm-hmm. You can hit, you can change the direction of the ball on a serve if it's not hard. So if you if you have a second serve, um, it's a good time to hit at the net person. Now, what you don't want to do is try to hit it into the alley because then you're cutting your your chances of making the shot, you want to keep the ball, you know, in the center of the court as much as possible. Um, And the lob is very underutilized return in in the recreational game. Um, I mean, I used to constantly lob. I would lob once a game normally. I was hitting a lob and coming in. Um, And for some reason, people don't think the lob or they don't practice it. It's, It's, you know, it's a shot you have to learn to hit. Um, yeah, kind of like the bump drive log
0: to my game over the last year I used to never lob my returns yeah and
1: it's so effective because especially if you have a poaching opponent because if you start right. lobbing they'll stop poaching because they have to back Absolutely. up yeah. so um, so I mean the thing with those is you have to utilize the whole court you have to mm-hmm. try to you know hit as many shots as possible but um, so I tell players you know I, I, I do this one drill where I players, where we say okay we're going to practice return but you can hit there's three returns that you can hit that are not your normal return, and, the, and these are the three that we're gonna practice. So the normal return is you hit cross-court and you stay back, right? That's what everybody does, hit cross-court stay back. The other three options are return and come in, drive it at the net person, and lob the net person. So, so you really have four options when you return. Uh, and you should have pre-thought before the ball comes which one you're gonna do. You should have a thought, for the forehand and you should have thought for the backhand. If the ball comes to the forehand, I'm going to do this. If the ball comes to the backhand, I'm going to do that. It's very, very important with the returns to have these routines because, you know, with the serve, you start the point. So you're dictating. You're, just, you're not going to start serving until you're ready and you decide where you want to hit the ball. But sometimes for the return, people aren't ready um, and they don't have a plan for, for return and you absolutely have to have the plan when you, when you return.
0: Right. Okay. So so if I'm the returner, I need to be thinking before first and second serve. Forehand I'm doing this, backhand I'm doing this. Correct. Of course we need to be practicing those different returns as well. Right.
1: And, and if it's, it's going to the bo- if it comes to the body, I'm going to run around and hit a forehand or or I'm going to run around right. and hit a backhand.
0: Right. Okay. And then, what about the returner's partner? What should they be thinking about?
1: The returner's partner's got a tough position. That's to me the hardest position in doubles is that of the returner's partner because if you have a pushing opponent, um, you're going to be in trouble right away. So, a lot of times, you know, a great strategy is to bring the returner's partner back if the return is not returning well. And some people think that's a bad thing to go two back. In fact, I'd much rather have two players be at the baseline uh, with two players at the end on the other side than have one-on-one one back with two on the other side because the best position in doubles is two players at the net with one-on-one one back on the other side and the worst position in doubles is to be in the one-on-one one back when there's two at the net and by the best and worst positions I mean statistically the two at the net are going to win the majority of the points and this is at all levels I'm not making this up this is a, there's plenty of data to show this so um so if you ever have you know if you're the returnist partner and you're feeling threatened or your partner's not returning well or you're feeling like you're not being helpful just go back to the baseline and hit ground strokes you know when you're when you're too up versus too back in the recreational game, it's not clear who has the advantage. You know, in the pro tour, usually two up has the advantage over two back, unless you're, like, in red clay and you have amazing ground strokes and you're Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer or something like that. Mm. But in the recreational game, two up versus two back, sometimes, sometimes the two back have better ground strokes than the volleyers. So you, can, mm. so you can win a lot of points in games by playing from the baseline. All but right. what we don't want is two up against one up one back.
0: Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And especially I'd imagine if you're the return team, you, you don't need to win, you know, 50, 60% of your games to win the match. You really need to win only maybe 30 or so percent of the games. So yeah, if you when you're returning back one- and increase your percentage, then right. sure, it seems like a great.
1: Yeah. Team. I mean, if you, if you have the mentality that if you never lose a serve, you never lose a match. If you understand that, you, if you never lose a serve, you'll never lose a match. Mm-hmm. Including if it goes to the tie break and you never lose your points. Right? So if you, if you start to develop that mentality and start to hold serve consistently, then all you need is one break and that's a set. And that's how the pros think. The problem with recreational players is that because they can break, because the serve is not as powerful and it's a lot easier to break. They don't, treat their serves with as much as importance because it's like, oh, well, I lost my serve, but I can break next time, so what's the big deal? Right, but if you can change your mentality to like, I have got to hold my serve, um, which was my mentality because if I didn't win my serve, one break was the set, more generally speaking, I would, uh, when so I was playing, I it's a little bit... Board. Yeah. It's different now. Yeah. Right. But it's different now because the returns are so big on the tour. It's different now. It's
0: yeah. you know the,
1: the returns have a bit of an advantage. The returns are bigger than the serves sometimes, but not when I was playing. And when I was playing the the tennis in the nineties, eighties, seventies is more equal to like recreational tennis now. Right. Mm. I mean, players, recreational players will never have the power of pros today. Sure. impossible, right? But, um, so you think about how how doubles was played, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and that's how recreational players should be playing. Interesting. um, You're going to win more points at the net, period. Interesting. In fact, let me I'll give you a stat for people who who disagree. From the 2015 Australian Open, you know, the best ground strokes, best players in the world, 2015 Australian Open, uh, from the second round to the finals, of all of those points that were played... 60% 60% of the points ended in an error. Okay, so like, that's a high number. Like for recreational players, it's more than that. Wimbledon is 70% because it works faster. But of the 40% point, do you know the stat? Of the 40% points that were winners, what percentage of the points do you think were won by the net player and the baseline? So out of 40%, what percentage of the points do you think the baseliners won? And these are the best ground so strokes was, in the world.
0: Mean the winner was hit from the baseline. Versus right. So they, from the net. Correct. I would guess the majority would have to be from the net. So like 80% net, 20% baseline.
1: Yeah. So you're a little bit off, but it, so we only have 40 points. So, but still you're off because it would be, it's 3% of the points were won by the baseliner okay. and 37% 37. were won by the person on the net. Okay, okay, so
0: so if so, you're, so I was saying like thirty and ten or something, I guess.
1: Right, you were like you said 20
0: percent of forty is. We don't have to do the math, but okay, yeah, good. <laughs> let me, let
1: me get it. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, so it's a low number, like it's three percent. So if you have the best ground strokes in your league, if you have the best four hundred and three five league or wherever you're playing 4-0, you mm-hmm. will win. You will hit one winner of three winners out of 100 from the baseline. Right. Right? So, so what's your mentality? It's like, it's not how do I win the point. It's how do I set up my partner to put the ball away for me, or how do I draw the error from the opponent? And that's really the mentality of, of, a, of good doubles players. It's yeah. always yeah, setting up their partner or drawing up the error or trying to draw the error.
0: So, so that, that brings up a, a question for me. So uh, one thing I see a lot is like for that club player who knows, you know, I've got the best forehand on the court, I'm playing three five and I've got a four O or a four five forehand. So I'm just going to sit back here and just crush four hands and win all these matches. But a lot of people don't think about, you know, how do I get to that next level? If I'm a three, five, how do I get to four o? if I'm a four, Oh, how do I get to four, five? And the answer oftentimes is not going to be sitting at the baseline and hitting your forehands. Right. It might be working on some of these other skills. Yeah. And how how do you coach people for that and think about improvement?
1: Yeah. So, you know, so that's why I have my cams because in 10 hours on the court, you the wild improvement you can have wild improvement because you really learn the game you learn where to stand you learn type of percentage what's not you learn shot selection you learn serve strategies return strategies um whereas you know if you if you worked on your forehand for 10 hours on the technique on your forehand you'd, you'd have moderate improvement but it takes a long time to make a strong a stroke better sometimes months and years before you know you, you can put it Uh, you know, a new stroke into play, or you can really take advantage of developing a stroke. But in, you know, if you learn positioning, you learn the art of doubles, you know, if you truly become a student of doubles, you can start winning matches just by being more intelligent than your opponent. You know, in fact, Natasha and I were not, we we won because we knew doubles better. We were not the better players on the court, you know, a large portion of the time. Like, because in, in our generation, the number one, the top singles players played doubles. So we were playing against, you know, Martina Navratilova, Martina Hingis, Lindsay Davenport, Jana Novotna, um, Arantxa Sanchez Vicario, Conchita Martinez—all these number yeah. number one, two, and three singles players in the world. Yeah. But you know, Natasha and I, who were like 15 and 30, so we're in that range we were not better than them. <laughs> we, we really were not, but right. we just understood doubles better. We understood shot selection and what was high percentage, what was not and who covered what ball. And we were really difficult to pass because we really, really understood yeah, uh, what to cover. A big difference. I mean, we had good hands, but it, it was more really the understanding of the game. And that's what can kind of take you know, whoever's listening to the next level. It's becoming uh, a student of doubles and really understanding it better. So is what's going to take you to the next right. level.
0: So, uh, I know we're kind of running low on time. How much more time do you have? I'm good. Okay.
1: I'd like so let's to take two more, more minutes, more. probably.
0: This last one is shot selection. You've mentioned it yeah. a few times. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, really understanding hypersensitive shot selection and what is the likely. Sh- shot that you should be hitting but also mm-hmm. in terms of coverage what is what shot should you cover that takes away the high percentage shot and gets your opponent the low percentage shot so you know we talked a little bit about um let's see what's what's a low percentage shot anytime you hit a ball into the alley it's a low percentage shot right um as far as shot selection i tell players you just because they gave you the alleys does not mean you should hit into it right so you want to try to keep the ball as much as possible in the single score you keep your opponent hitting the ball in the single score because you uh, kind of close the angles of the net. Um, you know, if you're at the net, if you're two up against one up one back, or two up against two back, any low volleys you want to hit deep, and any high volleys you can hit at the person at the net. Um, you know, hitting lobs, you have to be careful hitting lobs when you're one up one back because if you don't hit a good lob, your partner's dead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think what those players in the professional game really get in trouble. By being cr- too creative, you know, like to try to hit different shots and then like try angles when they shouldn't, and they um, they try to mix, they redirect the ball constantly. So the ball goes cross court, they hit it down the line, cross court, down the line. We get into this cross court, down the line pattern. What really, when I was playing doubles, I hit ninety eight percent of the balls that I hit were cross court through the middle. Sure. So everything was cross court through the middle. Um, I only hit down the line when. I thought I could hit a winner because if I didn't hit the winner, I was going to lose point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, but so then, it's having, understanding that, and then having the discipline to continue to yeah. execute the right shot. Right. Um, you know, I, I tell players there's four errors, four types of errors that you make, and the acronym is PEST. You make positioning errors. You Make execution errors, you make shot selection errors, and you make tactical errors and Really, the only one you cannot control is execution. You never know how you 're going to play on any given day, nor do Roger and Serena they have good days and bad days. so if you can eliminate positioning errors, tactical errors, and shot selection errors, you will immediately become a better player and and you know if all your points end in an execution error you 'll win a lot of matches
0: right you'll
1: win a lot more matches than we 're yeah, winning that makes
0: now a ton of sense so, so, so for shot selection how should we be thinking about uh offensive versus defensive i guess
1: yeah so yeah so i so i separate shot selection by the formations of the court there's three possible formations that we have you can be two up you can be two back or you can be one up one back you and your team and your opponents are always in one of these formations and depending on where where you are in that formation then there's high percentage shot selection so if we start out Let's do like the three basic ones. If, if both players are one-up, one-back, what are you trying to do? You want to keep the ball cross score. You want to keep it in the single score. If you hit wide, your partner can help you. But ideally, you're trying to come in because whoever comes in first puts their team in the best position in the which is two-up, and puts their opponent in the worst, which is one-up, one-back, when there's two at the net. Um, so if you get that two-up, one I guess, one-up, one-back position, the any, vo, any volley that you get, if you're the two-up, goes back to the baseliner. There's no need to change the direction of the ball here unless you get a high ball. If you get a high ball, you're gonna take that to the net player. Um, the, the net person there in that one opposition, position, if they can somehow get back, that's preferable. Or if the baseliner can somehow come in um, and then we're two up, two up. When we're two up, two up, really no one has the advantage. You, the goal there is to keep the ball low. Um, not, you don't really want to open angles. Whoever opens angles generally gets in trouble, uh, unless you're very good at opening the angles, uh, don't open it first. Let like your part, your opponents do that. Um, I wouldn't lob when there's four players at the net. low percentage to hit lob volleys. And if you don't execute it, you're going to get drilled. Um, if you're too up, two back, um, the baseliners, I tell the baseliners to think of hitting the ball in the zones and the zones are the openings like the alley, the alley in the middle between the people who are standing and of course the lob you always think two shots ahead in doubles you hit to a zone to open up another zone so if you hit into the alley the players shift now you've opened the other alley if you hit to the middle both players go you open the alleys sure. um, and of course you always can lob to push people back off the net um, yeah, makes- and those are the basic formations I mean one two back against one up one back and all these other ones happen but the, but those are the most common ones are two, one up one back is one up one back and then two up against one up one back and then all four players at the net so if you kind of master high percentage shot selection from those three formations you'll start playing better
0: yeah yeah that's that's uh, a lot of good information one one thing that i've started to teach people the last couple of years and i'm interested to hear your thoughts on this is to really attack the backhand volley a little bit more, especially at the recreational level. So what I notice is most of the errors at the net are from the backhand volley side. So, you know, if we're at two up against two up, you know, you talked about keeping it low towards the middle of the court or even two up against two back. Targeting that middle The
1: between, backhand volley,
0: back, backhand volley, yeah, first, absolutely, definitely.
1: yeah, definitely in a 3 0, 3 5, 4 0 level. That most yeah. um, players will have a weaker backhand volley than a forehand volley, unless they have two hands. Sometimes, sometimes people with two good 200 backhands that have a 200 volley mm. can have a good backhand volley, but if there's a, a backhand volley weakness, by all means, you want to attack it,
0: sure. So <laughs> A couple more questions then let's get into some rapid fire. So the, uh, a lot of questions Mm -hmm. I get around this 3540 level is we try to both get to the net and we just keep getting lobbed. What what do you tell people in that scenario?
1: Um, So I asked, uh, first I want to make sure that they're staggered properly or they're not overclosing. you know, again, a big reason that a big part of the problem with people getting lobbed is that they're closing to the mm-hmm. net on the cross, the cross court person's closing. So they, they leave the lob open. Um, you know, the, the position of the, of the stagger can be 1% in the circle, 1% in the service line, if you're anticipating lob. Mm-hmm. So it's, so if you're getting lobbed, don't close, don't get close to the net. And just kind of hold your staggered precision with the anticipation of the lob. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a weapon. The lob is a weapon in the recreational game because overheads are not weak. So if you're constantly getting lobbed, then I say, don't come in. Stay too back. And then if they're at the baseline, then you bring them in. Mm-hmm. You know, like serve, have your server's partner be back and have the returns partner be back. So you always want to avoid what is beating you.
0: Sure.
1: So yeah, if you're getting beat by it, avoid it. And how do you avoid it? You, if you can't hit overheads then just don't come in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Just, and and then go practice your overheads. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So, um, a couple more questions. So we've talked a lot about strategy. Uh, I want to kind of transition back to the pro tour. Um, singles is obviously far more popular on the pro tour than doubles. What is it yep. going to take for doubles to become? It, it'll never reach the singles level, or at least not anytime soon. What is it going to take for doubles to become a little bit more popular uh, at that pro level? In your mind,
1: um, I think it'll te- it'll take the fans speaking out, you know, and really uh, demanding like more coverage. Uh, you know, I mean, it's interesting because if if you ask most people that are watching you know tennis had a tournament what do they play they play doubles mm-hmm. they don't play singles right so um, and you know the uh, networks won't show it yet a couple of years ago they did an experiment where i think it was for the month of october they they played doubles matches they played like all those matches mm-hmm. from random you know tournaments in europe and their ratings were through the roof really yet, Who did that? yes I know it's a little non secret because I actually talked to the WTA about letting me have access to those doubles matches so that so that I could play them. I have a, another website called doubles.tv where I, it's where all my um products are, my my all my kind of informational or instructional products. And I wanted to put those matches in there that were commentated. So I would commentate the match for for the viewer, kind of going through what I thought was wrong and right. Um and they shared that with me. And it's like so then what happened was the broadcasters will not release it because now they think it's valuable, but they, but they won't play it because there's not enough airtime. And it's like they'd rather play some, you know, 500,000 satellite in the middle of nowhere than play a you know, quarterfinals of a tier one event, which I don't get.
0: Yeah.
1: So, I mean, if you keep complaining to tennis channels, you know, just keep complaining, keep complaining, yeah. keep complaining, and eventually they'll show it more.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm working on that. I'm trying to yeah. the troops and uh yeah. do that. If it's hard. an experiment, was it the WTA that
1: did yeah. the doubles thing? Yeah, the WTA. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It was in I think October of 2018 was when they did it. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, it would be so easy to set something that, like that up on doubles TV or the WTA site right. or whatever and just But then it, it was like
1: forget it because then legal got involved and like there's all this broadcasting rights and uh, this and that so that the people with the rights wouldn't release them because they then realized that it was valuable and but then no one really wanted to pay for it so it,
0: it, um, right
1: I so it's that. just sitting in a vault somewhere
0: that's disappointing to hear well yeah hopefully we can change that um cool so let's let's end with some rapid fire questions uh okay these are going to be just quick questions they can be quick or long answers uh, what is your favorite tennis book?
1: Oh my god, none. <laughs> none?
0: What's no. your favorite non tennis book then?
1: Uh, darn, um, you know, I read so much that I, I can't pick one, I have so many like every whatever I'm reading at the time,
0: you've read
1: a uh, hillbilly elegy, education, oh, yeah. um. What else? Uh those two just came to mind. Okay. Oh, where the crowd at sing was spectacular. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I love I love historical fiction. Any historical fiction I
0: love. Cool. Okay. What is what was your favorite tournament to play?
1: The Australian Open.
0: Australian Open. Who is the toughest opponent you played against?
1: Monica Sellers. Why? Um,
0: she stood three feet inside the service
1: line to return my serve. And in singles, when I played her, it was impossible to get to the net for a first volume.
0: Mm. So she took your time away? Yeah. What is your favorite win of your career?
1: My favorite win? Uh, it's probably a close tie between beating Martina M. Pam at the 1988 U.S. Open, which is my first Grand Slam. It was in the semifinals. Um, and they were the best team in the world by far. They had just lost a 108 match win streak. And uh, my partner Robin White and I were seated, unseated, I think, or seated 15 or something. And we beat them and ended up winning the tournament. So I would set up my first and win. And the second one uh, would be a very close second, the first Olympic gold medal. We beat the Spaniards in Spain in front of a packed stadium. with 12,000 people watching. So it was the biggest crowd ever played. so that was kind of
0: fun nice awesome uh and then last question i might have to change this one I, i always ask uh people what is a tennis story that you've never told anyone And a lot of people haven't had one so what's your favorite tennis story maybe
1: um my favorite tennis story well since yeah but i've told this a lot but since i was just talking about my favorite match which is the olympic um win in 896 or yeah, no, 92 rather, 92 Olympics in Barcelona. My favorite story is, you know, Mary Jo and I were playing that match and we were up six, we were a seven, three, one, I was serving 30, 15. And between my first and my second serve, these two people walk on the court. Literally, I hit my first serve and I'm serving to the outside. And they just walked on the court to take their seats and their seats were like kind of eye level. So I had to stop, wait for them to take their seats. The whole crowd is like going, Rrr. I thought they were like yelling at them to take their seats. And of course I proceed to double fault, and I go up to Mary Jo and I go, God, Mary Jo, what are those people doing? She so goes, Gigi, calm down. It's the king and the queen of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> so the king, king and the queen of Spain had this habit of showing up at gold medal matches um, for the Spaniards. And then the Spaniards, would elevate their games and come back and win, win gold medals. They've been doing it throughout the games. And sure enough, Pertitta oh and Arantxa started playing like out of their minds. And then won the next six games. We we're down too low in the third before we were, we were uh, able to turn turn around and come back and win in the third.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm. What a mental yeah. like battle. <laughs> I, I know. The king and queen come out between serves.
1: I know. I was pretty upset about that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, at least you got the victory. Yes. Awesome. Uh, any other final statements or requests from the audience?
1: Um, well, I mean, I have a lot of good products at TV or gtranscents.com. Um, my camps are super fun. They're here in Tampa. Uh, they're three days. We um, play about 10 hours over three days cover all the GT Method off-court. And then we talk about the mental game and uh, I, I've been keeping them really small because of COVID only eight players of sure. the same rating. Um, and they're very popular. Um, so if you, if you or your friends ever want to go to a doubles camp, if you travel to, you know, tennis travel to camps, yeah, absolutely. keep that in mind because it's really a fun, fun time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we'll link yeah. to all of that in the show notes as well. So people can find appreciate it. 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 And all right. Up. And uh, thank Okay. You Thank
1: you. Thank you. Sorry I was late. Bye.
0: You're fine. Bye. Bye. If you're a doubles player, you'll love our weekly doubles newsletter. Every Thursday, we send you doubles tips and strategies to help you improve your game and become a smarter player. When you sign up, you'll get a free 10-page guide on how to play with more confidence and dominate at the net in doubles. You can go to thetennistribe.com to sign up now